0: Well, does anybody have Hebrews eleven seven memorized? Because we've been—if I'm not going to put anybody on the spot—but we've been each week we're trying to work on this chapter together as the body of Christ. So, does somebody want to make an attempt to quote Hebrews eleven seven from memory? Who would do it? All right, we got somebody. all, Got Cat all the way in the back. Pat, why don't you take that back to Cat? Take that back to cat, turn it on for (laughs) cat. Thanks, Pat. Go ahead. Is it not working? Try it now. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. All right, good job. Pat, can you bring that back up, actually? (laughs) All right, so let's see if I can do it. I get nervous doing this. By faith, Noah in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And in this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. And uh, warnings, and we are warned here. Um, And Noah took heed to to the warning. Let me pray. Father, feed us now with this living word. Satisfy our hearts with it. Help us to see that you are our creator and our redeemer. And you are also the judge of the whole earth. We thank you that you, the judge, also took the penalty for us so that we wouldn't have to take it. And so may we find our rest in Jesus. And for those here today that haven't put their their faith and trust in you, repented of sin, that you bring conviction and lead them to yourself. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We hear warnings every day. We hear warnings all the time. And I think sometimes we hear so many warnings that we just, we just kind of mute the TV. And sometimes, I mean, some of these warnings are just absolutely hysterical. I mean, if you listen to these medical commercials, and they go on and on with the side effects that if you take this medication, and they have to do it really fast to get it out in like 20 seconds, and they go on and on with this stuff, and Kim and I will look at each other like, are you kidding me? Who in the world would take this product, you know? You could have, you know, you might lose your hearing. You might, you know, you might lose your vision and, you know, seek medical attention right away, you know, and it's, wow, like, who's going to take that? Well, there are some warnings like that, but there are lots of areas where we're getting warnings all the time that we need to take a little more seriously. And sometimes these things are a way to protect us. So if you're going to, you know, I just took my daughter to uh, I Drive Smart class, and she was telling me about, you know, before you get your driver's license, they want you to go to one of these classes. And in these classes, you probably remember when you got your license, you watch these videos, and the videos are meant to take an objective truth and reality of don't drink and drive, and it's supposed to make a big subjective impact on your life that would so affect you that it would change your lifestyle and your choices about drinking and driving, or last text, you know, and they show all these last texts. This is the very last text they sent right before collision and killed so that you would not text and drive that there would be this objective reality would lead to such a subjective impression on you that you would change your life. Well, those are important because every time we get behind the wheel of a car, we are driving a three to 5,000-pound missile. And that missile, if it hits somebody, as Venus Williams is only going five miles an hour, goes through an intersection and somebody gets killed. It doesn't take much. And it's not just driving a car that has warnings. I mean, there's warnings behind anything that we operate, whether it's a four-wheeler, a motorcycle, a jet ski, or a boat, or flying a plane. There's warnings to be heeded, and there are safety protocols to be followed. And if you play any sports, there's warnings, and there are safety protocols to follow. That if you play football, you are not to tuck your head when you go in, and you're no longer to leave with your head because of concussions. And so, if you're a scuba diver, there is certain protocol for how to do this. There are warnings that you don't come up too fast, so you don't get the bends. And there are warnings with all kinds of things that we see, like animals, like lions and tigers and bears. My, we know to, you know, there are certain, and when you go to the zoo, you follow certain protocol, like they're in a cage, I am not, I don't go in their cage, and I don't stick my hand in their cage. And then there's certain things like spiders, certain spiders, certain snakes that are poisonous, certain mushrooms, even certain ivies that are poisonous, and we have to take heed. Now, what all of those clear examples that I've given to you, they have warnings that have prior history, and you often have present experience, or you're seeing videos of present experience. So you get it when they say, don't do that. Rico Tyson, his Christianity Explored series, he talks about taking off his shirt and getting ready to go into the ocean. And there's a sign that just said, Sharks. You know, beware of sharks, do not swim. And his friend said to him, Rico, what are you doing? You got to make a decision. Are you going to believe that sign, or are you going to put your life in your own hands and go swimming? Because See, he's over in Europe, and wherever he'd sw- swum before, and he'd just go right in, and, and here, this is infested with sharks. Do you, are you going to ignore the sign and go in that water? Well, he didn't go swimming that day. He made a wise decision. Now, that was a little different because it was different than his present experience. Now, sometimes we have a warning, but we don't have any prior experience, any present experience with it or prior history, so we just think the warning shouldn't be heeded. Okay? This is all leading up to something, okay? So I remember when I was learning how to drive, and this is a long time ago, but it's a vivid reminder of a warning that wasn't heeded. So my dad uh, took me out when it was starting to snow. He got excited because the snow was coming down. What a great opportunity to teach his son how to drive in the snow. So he takes me to the parking lot. This is uh, in western Howard County. And we're driving around in the snow, and this is a 79 Ford pickup truck that's two-wheel drive, And, the, and as you know, in those two-wheel drive pickup trucks, the, the wheels pick up in the back, and the back weighs about five pounds, and doesn't take anything for the thing to spin. And so he's teaching me how to drive. He's, all right, let's go to Woodbine. So we head for Woodbine Hill. And for those of you experienced of the country in the middle of nowhere, you cross the railroad track and you start up on this steep incline going up this hill, and it's a three-speed, so I shift into second speed. He had changed this thing to a Hertz shifter on the floor, and I put it in second gear, and I started going up and he said, give it some gas, son, because he knew we weren't going to climb it with the snow, but there's a a, uh, huge snowplow coming down the hill, and the back end weighs five pounds, and he's telling me to give it the gas, okay? Needless to say, I didn't... I didn't give it enough gas because I was afraid we were going to hit the snowplow, and we didn't make it up the hill. So we get about two-thirds up the hill. My dad's pretty mad at me, and I think he's embarrassed that his green truck is now stuck on Woodbine Hill, and we're stuck. So we switch sides, and he starts to back down the hill, okay? And I have the door open in the passenger side, and I'm looking behind me, and I see a huge ditch in a hole, and it's still there today. If you go by, you can still see it. And I'm seeing this thing and realizing we are in big trouble. And I'm saying, Dad, there is a huge hole that we are going to drop into. Now, he has no prior history or present experience with a hole that a truck could get stuck in. I mean, that's impossible. Well, so I'm telling him, Dad, we are going, in, and he's not listening. He just ignores me. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he keeps backing up. And to this day, this is a family joke because I said, Dad, we're history because I can see what's going to happen, and boom, we just dropped right into this hole, right on the axle. The wheel is just completely, you know, boom, we're done. He did not listen, and so we still laugh about that to this day. But being up in the country, and that's when three-wheelers were in, a bunch of these farm strong guys on three-wheelers, about four of them just showed up out of middle of nowhere, and they're strong enough that they could lift the back end of a truck and put it back on the road, and off we went. All right, so the point is, is that my dad didn't have any history, and so the warning didn't make any sense. So my point with this is, is that Noah is given this warning. He says he's warned of events yet unseen. He has no experience of maybe just a little experience of rain, if he's even had that. He's probably never seen a lake. He's certainly never seen a flood or a deluge, He's never seen an ocean, and he's never seen a boat. And God tells him that you are going to build this boat. that is going And this is what he tells him. In Genesis 6, we're given the account. And Noah just simply believed God at his word. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half. 75 feet wide. That's about as, almost as high as our steeple. And 45 feet high. Make a roof for it. Finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. So this is three tiers. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And you're to take every kind of food that's to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So I want you to just consider this morning, I want us to consider Noah's response, Noah's rebuke, Noah's reception. First, the response. It's an objective word that is spoken to him, and the first thing it does is it produces a subjective, what Tim Keller would call a self-quake. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark, in reverent fear. You see, it produces something so deep of an impact on his affections that it led to a change of life. God says, I'm going to destroy the whole world by a flood except for you, your family, and some animals. And Noah's response is is that he's ripped. It's going to rip him in the affections. It produces a fear. And this reverent fear doesn't forget what God has said. It doesn't ignore what God has said. It doesn't procrastinate. It doesn't hesitate. It doesn't scoff. It doesn't mock. This objective word goes into Noah's heart, and it's full of the fruit of reverent fear. This reverent fear changes the whole trajectory of his life. He got busy building a boat. How long did it take him? Anybody remember? Leave Leave that slide up. 120 years he's building that. Not exact one, but I mean, you get the idea. We still haven't found the exact one. We're still looking. Um. And so this is what Tim Keller refers to as like, this would be like building a luxury liner in Kansas. And so I want you to use your imagination for a minute. Think about you're living in Noah's day. You're in the middle of nowhere near water, and you see this guy start to build that. And what is the reaction of the rest of the world? How's the rest of the world living compared to, you know, how are they perceiving Noah's doomsday prepping? I mean, he would have been the the biggest late-night comedy jokes, the biggest Twitter one-liners, the biggest Facebook posts, fake news stories, mocking songs written, put to rhyme. They didn't have modern technology like that, but they had tongues. And their tongues were full of Noah jokes. Noah was the joke of the town. I came across this quote in Albert Barnes' commentary this week, and he put it like this. This is insightful. He says, it's beyond all question that Noah would be subjected to much ridicule and scorn. He would be regarded as a dreamer, a fanatic, an alarmist, a wild projector, the purpose of making preparation for such an event as the flood to occur after the lapse of 120 years where there's no indications of it and all appearances were against it will be regarded as the highest degree wild and visionary. The, degree, the design of building a vessel which would outride the storm and which would live in such an open sea and which would contain all sorts of animals with the food for them for an indefinite period could not have been but regarded as eminently ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, this is a survival kit of survival kits and he this is eminently ridiculous. When the ark was preparing, nothing could have been a more happy subject for scoffing and jibes In such an age, therefore, and in such circumstances, we may suppose that all the means possible would have been resorted to to pour contempt on such an undertaking. They who had wit would find here an ample subject for its exercise. If ballads were made then, no more fertile theme for a profane song could be desired than this. And in the haunts of revelry and temperance and pollution, nothing would furnish a finer topic to give point to a jest than the credulity and the folly of the old man who was building the ark. It would require strong faith to contend this, thus, with the wit, the sarcasm, the content, the raillery, and the low jesting, as well as the wisdom and philosophy of a whole world. How about you? You see, Noah was contramundum. He was against the world, and by his actions and by his words, we are told in 2 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You see, he responded to God's word, and in doing so, he rebuked the world just by simply building this ark. And he didn't have all the modern tools. He didn't have Amazon Prime. He didn't have Lowe's, no Home Depot. No Makita driver drills, okay? No DeWalt's, no Milwaukee's, no Ryobi's, none of that fancy stuff. No steel 066's with a 36-inch bar. I mean, none of that stuff. This is, I mean, he didn't even have a chalk line. This is primitive building. And he just starts to build. And as he's doing that, he's rebuking the world because he's living differently. My point is this. You that want to stand and tell people, and we are required to tell them, there's a judgment to come. You have to get ready. It's going to be worse than this. It's a fire. And we're to be ready for when the Lord returns. And when we start to talk like that and live like that, people are going to laugh at us. They're gonna think this is the funniest thing they've ever heard and people make fun of Christians. They made fun of them in the early church even as they threw them to the lions. Noah kept building. For 120 years, he kept building. He was faithful, he believed God's word because the objective truth had such a subjective impression upon his heart that in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And in doing so, he's rebuking the world, condemn the world. Jesus takes this very truth. And refers back to Noah's day in Matthew 24 when Jesus is talking about his return. He says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all the way. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will will be in the field, and one will be taken, and one left, and two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you he will set him over all his possessions but if that wicked servant says to himself my master is delayed and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. The Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed ends with, "On the third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, God the Father, and for there he will come to judge the living and the dead." The church has been saying that for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the reason they've been saying that is because of what the Bible teaches, that there will be a bodily, visible return of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1 says when our Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled out, marvelled at among all who have believed. So his return will also be accompanied with the resurrection of the dead. The Bible says in John 5, Jesus says that he's been given authority to exercise judgment because he's a son of man. He says, don't marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. And those who've done good do a resurrection of life and those who've done evil do a resurrection of judgment. We're all coming out. There's a judgment day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the day of judgment. It's warned all over the Bible. And several parties will be judged, the fallen angels, Satan, and all his demons. But every individual who's ever lived will have to appear before the judgment seat. And we will be judged for every idle word, every secret thought. All will be manifest, all brought to light, everything exposed. That's pretty scary. Because none of us are ready in and of ourselves. None of us can endure that judgment. Hell's a real place, it's called an abyss, it's called a prison, it's referred to as the outside, a place where people are cast into hell. It's a total absence of blessings from God, it's just the opposite though, they are, they are experiencing pangs of conscience in body and soul. And the Bible speaks of hell as a lake of fire, the Gehenna of fire, the furnace of fire, the place of everlasting torment, where the worm never dies and the flames are never extinguished. A, it's a fire that never dies. And Jesus said about it in Luke 16, 26, that between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there from, here, from there to us. Meaning you can't change sides. You can't decide, I, I, want, I want out now. The punishments will continue forever just as the bliss of saints continues forever. So Matthew 25, 46 says, then they will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You are heading to one of those two destinations this morning. But The good news is, is that you too can be an heir of righteousness. You see, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. And so, an heir, there's two kinds of heirs. I mean, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the rightful heir because he owns everything. But most of us, if we become an heir of something, it means we didn't do anything. It means somebody died and we, we are the heir, we are the blessed, even though we didn't do anything. Noah became an heir because he simply believed God's word and changed his life. We become an heir by believing that Jesus is our ark. Jesus is our ark. There's a storm coming. And we have this doctrine called union with Christ, being united with Christ, that we're in him. The Bible describes us as being hidden in Christ, And so that when he returns, you will return with him. We hide in him. He's our hiding place. And the waters of the sea is actually a reference to chaos and judgment in the whole Bible. And sometimes it's literal and sometimes it's figurative. But God has control over the sea and the waters What we see in the Bible. And we see God often brings judgment through waters. He he delivers Noah and his family and they experience this great deliverance. But then there's this deluge and the rest are destroyed. Does that sound like anywhere else in the Bible? How about the Red Sea? And they, they cross through and all they see is God's amazing provision and grace and mercy. Unbelievable until they turn around and all they see is wrath and judgment and justice being poured out and everybody being swept away. And then we see that Jesus himself is using that imagery about himself. 1 Peter 3, this very, very difficult passage in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 says, I want you to know, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that, he says, in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then Peter says, in baptism, which, re- which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Noah and Moses were delivered by trusting in God, now we are delivered And it even says that now that that there's a correspondence here to baptism. And the idea is that we're baptized into Christ Jesus and we're united to him. And we're identifying with his death and his resurrection and deliverance from the wrath to come. And so then Jesus experiences this deluge of God's wrath. And Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm, this messianic psalm about Christ and Christ in this psalm says, I become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And then he says, reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I look for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Those are all things that are fulfilled in Christ. But the beginning of Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. That's ultimately referring to Christ. That Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo and how I am in great distress until it is accomplished. And he's referring to the judgment of drinking God's wrath and experiencing God's malediction, not the benediction, the blessings, but the curses of the covenant. And literally what killed Jesus was fluid that filled up his lungs and drowned. Drowned in his own water and his blood and being asphyxiated. Jesus drank that cup. He experienced the curse. He was drowned in the flood. But even at Jesus' baptism, when He came up out of the water, you remember what happened when Jesus came out of the water? The Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. It should remind us, water, dove, Noah, deluge, deliverance, judgment being over, new creation, starting over. And Jesus is bringing that. He's the ark. You see, Peter Lewis put it like this, Jesus Christ is our ark now, big enough for the whole world, strong enough to withhold the shocks of life, the rising waters of death, and the upheavals of the last judgment. There is safely here in the Son of God sent to be for us all the shelter, the salvation that we so desperately needed, our ark and safe passage into the new world God has planned. From that ark, we will emerge to inherit a new heaven and a new earth. You see, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus has come down from heaven to earth and has stood in our place and taken the curse and has taken the wrath and the storm and it's all been poured out on Jesus. And then Jesus says it is finished. He accomplishes the mission that the Father had given him to do and then he's raised on the third day. He ascends into heaven and now he invites The world is calling people to repent and to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That is our hope and our access for how to get to God and to be made right with him. Is that God is just and the justifier. God must punish sin so he punishes it on himself. So that when this verse in Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Because I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, I'm your Savior. Is he your Savior this morning? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are desperate without you. We have no good thing apart from you. But in you, we have everything, all that we need for life and godliness. Thank you that we can come through the merits and through the blood of Jesus. I pray that we would each know clearly that you are a creator and a redeemer. And there's none like you. You're the only God who can forgive our sins. And we give you our sins even now. But there are many. We ask that you'd have mercy on us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.